Well, for those who, who may not be familiar with how the Bible is put together, the New Testament opens with four books that we call Gospels. Each one of them tells the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They are the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all tell the same story, but they all do it with slight differences and different points of emphasis. And this morning, as we begin a new series of sermons, we're going to turn to one of those Gospels as our point of focus this morning. Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke. That's the third book in the New Testament. We're going to turn to the 10th chapter and read about an episode that occurred. Now, to set the context, one chapter earlier in Luke chapter 9, we read that Jesus, quote, set his face to go to Jerusalem. And the way Luke has arranged all of the material that he gives us, from that point forward, everything that happens, happens as Jesus is journeying towards Jerusalem. And of course, we know what will happen when he gets there. That's where the conflict will come to a head. It's where Jesus will be crucified and he knows that and that's in the background of of everything that's going to happen and we'll actually uh, call that to attention in a few moments but it's important to have that as the context in which this episode occurs that we read about in Luke chapter 10 beginning in verse 38 let me invite you to follow along as Jesus and his disciples were on their way he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. Would you pray with me? Father, as we just read, there are many things that would distract us and keep us from you. May by your spirit in these coming moments you come and clear those distractions from our hearts and minds that we may be focused upon you and what you have to say. Through Christ we pray, amen. <clears throat> well, I recently read about an article that supposedly appeared in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Didn't read the article myself, but read a summary of it. Now, the Journal of the American Medical Association is a highly revered peer-reviewed professional medical journal that's intended to report the latest in medical research. According to what I read in this article, it was reported that the United States Army had hired a group of eminent psychiatrists and tasked them with creating a series of tests that the Army could use to best determine which climate a future recruit could serve in most effectively. 
More specifically, they were wanting to know, how can we better tell whether or not this recruit is best suited to serve in a hot desert climate or in a cold Arctic climate? And so these psychiatrists put together a whole battery of tests. They ran these recruits through a series of psychological profiles, through uh, physical exams, through cognitive assessments. And at the end of the report, they issued their findings. The best way, they said, to determine the right climate for a soldier was to ask him, do you like hot weather or cold? Sometimes we make things more complicated than they have to be. We build in complexity and confusion where it really isn't necessary. It's true in just about every area of life. Take your physical health, for example. You want to lose weight and get in shape? It's really quite simple. Eat less food, get more exercise. You want to improve your emotional or relational health, how about this? Try being honest and transparent in the way you speak to people. You want to grow in your spiritual life, become closer to God? How about just doing the things the Bible tells us to do? It's really that simple. Now, just because it's simple doesn't mean that it's easy. Don't misunderstand me. In any of these areas, there are hurdles to overcome and pressures to resist. But a thing can be hard and yet still be simple. That is to say, it's not hard to understand. It doesn't take a lot of effort to wrap our heads around what is required of us. And that's why over these next few Sundays, we're going to explore our need for simplicity in life. How can we uncomplicate things, even if just a little bit, strip away some of that unnecessary complexity? Our goal in this, our reason, our objective is pretty simple. How can we create more space in our lives for the presence of God to take root? Over in Matthew's gospel, a passage we didn't read this morning, Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable about a farmer who went out to sow some some seed. He scatters it sort of randomly It falls all over the place. Some of that seed landed on fertile soil where it quickly took root and it grew up and it produced fruit quite abundantly. But some of the seed fell on other types of soil, rocky soil, shallow soil, packed soil. And and while some of it did take root, we go on to read that pretty quickly the weeds around it also grew up and in short order those weeds choked the life of that plant. That's kind of how our lives function. That's how our spiritual lives go. There's all this stuff that's grown up in our hearts and in our minds and in our souls, and it has a way of choking the life of God out of us so that His Word never really gets to take root. And so what we're seeking to do over these next few weeks is to do a little weeding, if you will. How do we clear away some of the junk that's there so that we can create breathing room, so we can create space for God to operate, so there's not as many distractions and competing voices, so that God's Word can take deeper root in our spirits. That's what we're after. Now, we begin that quest with a simple acknowledgement, and it is this, life is complicated. Life is filled with complex issues. 
It's filled with difficult choices. Life presents us with a never-ending list of demands that require our attention. We might wish that it were otherwise. You know, you've all heard the expression, sometimes people say, please stop the world, I want to get off. But there's no stop button, it just keeps going. You know, I might wish that my house never got dirty. I might wish that my car never broke down. I might wish that my loved ones never got sick. I might wish that my checking account never ran low. I might wish that my schedule was no, never overfilled. I might wish that there was never any injustice to confront or that there was never any painful sacrifices to make or any hard questions to answer. I might wish for that, but that's not the way the world is. And living as God's faithful people sometimes means being willing to move into the complexities of life with all of the resources of our faith at our fingertips. If you were to turn over to the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, verse 22, we would read this. How long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? Now in that case, simplicity is being compared to foolishness. The kind of simplicity that's being discussed there is a simplicity that comes from a denial of knowledge, from a refusal of wisdom, and from an unwillingness to apply the deep truths of God to the deep challenges of life. And so, in our quest and our understandable desire for simplicity, we can't take the approach of trying to strip away the nuances of life. The problem that we are seeking to address is the fact that we have a tendency to make things more complicated than they have to be. We take what is already a complex world and we add complication to it. We build in unnecessary stress and anxiety and worry for ourselves. We do so with the choices that we make, with the habits that we develop, with all the stuff that we accumulate, with the insane schedules we keep, with the ambitions we pursue, with the jealousy and pride and envy that we harbor. Most of all, we do it with all of the sin of which we so stubbornly refuse to repent. These are the things that choke the Word of God out of us. These are the things that crowd out His presence and rob us of joy and fulfillment in life. This week, through social media, I invited people to share their thoughts about this. I asked, and I quote, what are the issues, challenges, or problems that make your life more complicated than you want it to be? And many of you were kind enough to offer responses, and I'm so grateful for your, your honesty and your vulnerability. Some of you talked about the complications that come from forces beyond your control like having to live with an illness and finding ways to deal with the limitations that that places upon you. Some of you 
talked about uh, the complications that come from having to care for aging parents or for young children or for other demands like that. And as we've already said, these things are just a part of life. And nothing we're going to say over these next few weeks are going to take those things away. But others of you talked about complications of a different variety. For example, several of you talked about busyness and the hectic pace of life. More specifically, you talked about the pressure you feel to always do more or the temptation you feel to say yes to every opportunity and every request that comes your way. Others of you talked about the pressure of trying to keep up with other people, especially when it comes to the things that we own. We look around us and it looks like other folks have got better cars and nicer homes and more fashionable clothes and more exciting vacations. And so we work ourselves to death and overextend ourselves in an effort to keep up with the Joneses, as the old expression goes. Some of you talked about the pressure that comes from not being able to control your minds the way you would like and your thoughts end up running away from you until you find yourself trapped in this endless downward spiral of negativity and self-doubt. Some people talked about the pressure you feel to always do more for your kids than was done for you to provide them more opportunities and more experiences and more activities under the fear that if you don't, they will get left behind. Now notice how often I just use the word pressure there. All of these things bring pressure into our lives. And their pressure builds until we no longer feel free. We do these things because we think they are the key to a fulfilled life. But at the end of the day, it has the opposite effect. We go and we do and we strive and we get. And when it's all said and done, we feel tired and diminished and limited to say nothing of being further in debt, and we wonder if it all adds up to anything. And yet, here's the really troubling thing about most of this. Most of this complexity is not required of us. Nobody makes us do these things except we ourselves. These are pressures that we voluntarily take upon ourselves. Now, we're quick to blame other forces for it. We'll point to the culture around us and blame society. We'll point to technology and its invasive uh, presence in our lives. We will point to the media and the toxic uh, culture that we find there. And all of that is true. But we operate under the assumption that, that we've got to fix those things and that will therefore solve our problems. And yet the fact is, so much of the stress and the anxiety and the worry that we have in our lives is self-imposed. And so the first step in seeking after simplicity, I think, is to take ownership of our own lives. Morally, physically, spiritually, financially. Take responsibility for our own lives. Let's quit giving control of our lives over to forces around us that do not have our best interest at heart. Instead, let's let God call the shots. Now, to that end, our scripture reading this morning gives us a great place to begin this conversation. Jesus is in the home of two sisters named Martha and Mary. Now, this same home is mentioned in at least two other places in the Gospel of John, 
And so even though this particular reading in Luke doesn't say so specifically, we know from those passages that Jesus was friends with Martha and with Mary and as well with their brother Lazarus, who's not mentioned in this episode. And that means it is most likely not an accident that Jesus is in their home. In other words, he he didn't just wander randomly into some stranger's house asking for supper. He's there because there is a relationship in place. He's there because he wants to spend time nurturing this friendship. And, And that fact can't be stressed enough because that friendship, that prior relationship is the background. It is the context out of which this episode occurs. At the end of the day, it is all about nurturing a relationship. Now, when I read this passage, like many of you, I think, my first instinct is to try to create a psychological profile of these two sisters. If I had to guess, I would say Martha is the firstborn of the family. She's driven. She's hardworking. She's goal-directed. She's task-oriented. She's the type A kid, the overachiever in the home. She's clearly in charge of this dinner party. She's planned the menu. She's arranged the ingredients. She set the table. And now that the guest of honor, Jesus, is in the home, she is in charge of the operations, trying to make sure that this meal gets completed and on the table so that they can eat dinner in a reasonable hour. On the other hand, there's her sister Mary, who comes off as more of a daydreamer. Doesn't necessarily mean she's lazy it just means she's more laid back she's not as concerned with whether or not the task at hand gets done on a tight schedule a beautiful sunset will catch her eye and suddenly she'll forget all about the chore she's working on she goes to the town well to draw water for the day and she gets so caught up in conversation with the other women that she forgets to fill the jar before she lugs it back home she's more of an in-the-moment kind of person, and we all know the type. Now, like I said, my instinct is to create that kind of profile, but understand that that profile is completely imagined. we got to begin by acknowledging that the scriptural story itself takes no interest at all in these women's psychological states. And so my instinct is to read something into the text that isn't there. Because as long as I can make this about personality styles, then I am protected from dealing with the penetrating truth of this story. Because you see, at the end of the day, this story isn't about whether you are a task-related person or a relationship-related person. Because there is no right personality style and there is no wrong personality style. God is the author of all personalities and they all have a role and a place. This story is not about trying to shed one personality and adopt another. This story is about what Jesus says to Martha when she complains to him about her sister. Martha, Martha, he says. You are worried and upset about many things. But few things are, in, are needed, indeed, only one. Hear that again. You are worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is truly needed. Do those words 
stir anything in you? Do those words sound like they're addressed to us today? I think they are. We are worried about so many things. Have we accomplished enough? Have we earned enough? Have we bought enough? Have we gone enough? Have we impressed enough? Have we experienced enough? Our lives are filled with the constant pressure to go and to do and to achieve. And yet here is Jesus telling us that in the midst of all of that, there is only one thing we truly need. Now what does he mean by that? And what is this one thing? Well, let's begin by saying what he does not mean. Jesus in this passage is not telling us that we are now freed or released from the obligations that life places upon us. Doesn't mean that we can ignore our duties, quit our jobs, or leave our families. It doesn't mean that we are now supposed to escape permanently from life and go off and live off the grid on the top of a mountain and spend the rest of our days in quiet contemplation. Jesus certainly didn't do that. Jesus was an incredibly busy person. We've already pointed out that, that this passage that we just read happens in the context of Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem. Everything that happens here is happening as they're moving towards this ultimate destination, which means Jesus is not out on some leisurely stroll. He's not out just meandering aimlessly through the streets waiting to see what happens next. He's going somewhere with a purpose in mind. He has an objective to fulfill, a mission to complete. And as he goes, he is busy every step of the way busy preaching busy teaching busy healing performing miracles casting out demons every episode we read about through this entire section of Luke's gospel is about something Jesus said or did he was on the go and so our goal is not simply to remove ourselves permanently from life this is not a call to inaction but it is a call to recognize that in the midst of all of the demands, all of the craziness, there is only one thing that is truly needed above everything else. And that one thing is to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from Him. Nothing else we will ever do in life is more important than that because he alone is the source of our life Jesus was there at our creation John 1 verse 3 says through him speaking of Jesus through him all things were made without him nothing was made that has been made and that includes you and me he is our creator Jesus alone has sustained us. 
Psalm 104 verse 27 says, All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. And all of our running and striving to meet our needs, it is actually Jesus who is providing for us. Most importantly, Jesus alone has reconciled us to God by the power of His cross. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ. He is the one who has paid the penalty for our sin. He is the one who has restored our relationship with the Father. He is our Creator, He is our Provider, and He is our Redeemer. The author both of life and of the life that is still to come. He is the provider of all that. And when it is all said and done, there is nothing more important we will do with our lives than to simply be in His presence to receive that. And here's the really good news, and I might go so far as to say the bad news about all of that. Jesus does all of this completely apart from anything we do to earn it or deserve it. That's good news because God does not measure out His grace or or His mercy on the basis of what we have accomplished or what we have achieved or, or what we have accumulated. The bad news is that it goes against everything we've come to believe about ourselves as self-sufficient, self-sustaining creatures. Modern Americans especially, we've been led to believe that life is all about what we make of it. And yet God's love is not a reward for productive living. His grace is not a prize that comes to us as a result of effective time management. God's grace is not a consequence of a healthy bottom line. God's love is a free gift that is offered wholly and completely to anybody who will receive it. Which should force us to ask a question. Why are we spending so much time and energy, and money trying to accomplish for ourselves what God has already freely given to us. We are running ourselves ragged, trying to impress people, trying to win approval, trying to persuade others, and perhaps most importantly, persuade ourselves that our lives count for something, that we have meaning and value and purpose, and yet what does all of that get us? You know, all those people we're trying to impress, chances are good they're not even paying attention because they're too busy doing the same thing themselves. All the stuff we accumulate because we think that's going to satisfy us, Well, a year from now, we'll be bored with it and we'll be off in search of something else even though we probably haven't finished paying for it yet. All the busyness that we do and that we use to fill in the boredom of our lives, at the end of the day, it just makes us tired and maybe clouding the very time and space that God's trying to use to speak to us. 
Meanwhile, Jesus is just standing there quietly, patiently, inviting us to come and just be in His presence, to sit at His feet, to receive the gift that He freely offers, to dwell in the freedom and the mercy and the goodness that is readily available to anybody who will receive it. And that's why Martha's, excuse me, Mary's story is worth remembering. I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure I like Mary that much. She's kind of a prophetic word into my life that I don't want to hear. And yet when she chooses to sit at Jesus' feet, she's demonstrating for us the power of the gospel. In that moment, she has no need to impress Jesus. In that moment, she has no need to hurry herself up. Sure, there's food to prepare and dishes to clean and all of that's got to be done. But at this particular moment in time, she's got nothing to earn, nothing to prove, nothing to try to achieve. At that moment, the only thing that matters is to be with the one who will soon offer himself up for her. That's why we still tell her story 2,000 years later. Because she is pointing us to that one thing that we most desperately need above everything else. Which leaves us with a challenge today. We began by saying that we sometimes make our lives more difficult than they have to be. Life is already complicated enough as it is without us making it even more so. So here's the challenge, here's the question that this story leaves us with. What unnecessary complications are we willing to cut out of our overstuffed lives? in order to create space and time to be at Jesus' feet. What's got to go? Perhaps there is a relationship in our lives that we know is toxic, and it just needs to be brought to an end. Maybe there is a habit that we know is destructive or unhelpful or unproductive, and we need to put it down. Maybe there is some activity that's just eating up our time and yet not leading us anywhere good. Maybe there is a possession or two or three or ten or a hundred that's consuming all of our energy, eating up all of our money and clogging our lives and we just need to get rid of it. What needs to go? What needs to be cut out and eliminated to create the space to sit at Jesus' feet? I heard somebody else somewhere refer to this as the spirituality of subtraction. It's kind of a countercultural idea. The world around us is constantly pressuring us to add more and more and more and more. 
And sometimes we even do it at church. You come in here busy enough, and you show up on a Sunday morning, and we say, now we also need you to do this and do this and do this. And you're thinking, where in the world am I going to fit that into what's already an overfilled life? So rather than coming this morning to find out what else you need to go do, the challenge for us this morning is what needs to be let go? What needs to be subtracted out of the equation of our lives? So that we can create space. So that we can take our place next to Mary and sit at Jesus' feet and learn from Him. Let's pray together. Father God, give us wisdom. That's what's called for now. The wisdom to examine our own lives. To realize those places where we are battling unnecessary distractions. Where we are creating space for unnecessary voices. Where we are opening ourselves up to unnecessary pressures. By your Spirit, give us wisdom to eliminate to cut out, to reduce, to pull back so that we can be with you and learn from you. That is our heart's desire. We make this prayer in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. The call begins with being at Jesus' feet. We've never acknowledged him as Lord, then that's the first thing that's got to happen. To acknowledge our need for him, to seek out his presence in our lives. And the good news is he's already sought us out. All we have to do is open ourselves to it. So if you're here this morning and you've never professed faith in Jesus Christ, that is the first step. He is your creator. He is your provider. He is your redeemer. And he wants nothing more out of all creation than to be with you. And so if that's where you are on your journey, as we sing here in just a moment, let me urge you to come forward. And we'll pray together as you begin that journey of faith. But, but this is not just a moment for new believers. It is for all of us. Because my guess is all of us have got some work to do. All of us have got things in our lives that need to be dealt with and removed to create the necessary space. And so as we sing our closing hymn here in just a moment, let's open ourselves to the movement of the Spirit that He might reveal to us what we need to let go of, what needs to be turned away from, what needs to be surrendered so that we can be with Him, not just in this moment, but every moment of our lives. I pray that will happen as we worship Him. Let's stand and sing together this morning.